Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Welcome back, everybody. It's really, really an honor to be back here. The, doing this podcast has been a true uplifting experience for me. Um, the feedback has been amazing, and I am so grateful to be able to bring to you another very, obviously, special guest, a uh, good friend, known him for a long time, and at a certain point in our relationship, I realized that he also has a story that is worth sharing, and I believe that if we just hear him out, we will be able to get inspired from it. So, welcome, Moishi Hecht. Thank you. Thank you, Moishi. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor to have you here, and um, if it's okay, I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to ask go. you a couple questions. Okay, so the first question I'd like to ask, just to invite the audience into what your life was like, just generally, the environment at home, at school, if there were any teachers that that did something that um, you remember that affected you, that lifted you up, if there was somebody that noticed you, anything that comes Paint up. the picture. Paint the picture. Where did it all start? Can. Please. Um, so, you know, I, I would like to, if you allow me to just uh, um, start off with a thought. You know, there... When you when Mayor called me and asked me to do this, <clears throat> I said, Mayor, you know, I don't I don't feel like a need to 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 go public, you know, with uh, my story and my challenges. Um, but if you if you feel it's in if you feel it's important, obviously it is. Um, then I'm going to do it, but sort of as a leap of faith, not with any type of uh, agenda. And I think that um, I think it's important that for people that are listening. Um, as follows, you know, there, there are two schools of thought when it comes to sharing stories. You know, some people are like, eh, what do you need to, you know, you know, uh, you know, hang out your dirty laundry out in public? You deal with it, deal with yourself. And then another school of thought is actually talking about it can have two positive effects. You know, first of all, it can have a positive effect on your own work. And sometimes um, many people who go um, talk publicly about their particular challenges say that talking about it public is actually part of healing. Um, and for so many reasons and for so many people, different reasons. And the second thing is, obviously, if there's someone else going through the same, um, going through the same thing, <clears throat> and if it could help one person, then it's, it's just, it's, it's totally worth it. If there's someone out there who's, you know, feels that, like they're alone in this, in this narrative or alone in this uh, type of experiences, then it's worth it to talk about it. And honestly, I'm not part of any one of those two um, schools of thought. Maybe I'm even part of like the first school of thought as a keeping quiet. I'm 34 years old. I've never really talked publicly about my challenges. I, mean, I talk publicly about a lot of things, um, and I'm a very public person. So it's not even like I'm an introvert or a quiet person. I just never talked about it because I never thought it was important necessarily for my own healing. Um, 
and obviously maybe it could be helpful for people out there, and I do believe that it could. But I, the reason why I'm saying this is because if there are people out there who feel that, you know, the only way that you can heal fully is if you go out and you talk about it in public, I don't believe that to be, to be the case. There's no one way to heal. And if you're listening to this and you're saying like, wow, you know, I've been quiet in my whole life and now I have to go talk in public about it to, to be able to heal, it's not true. Because the truth is that for 34 years, I've been dealing with it in a private way. Um, and, and I'm not doing this now because I feel like I need to, there's like a, a next level of healing that I need to go through to do it. I'm doing it as a leap of faith. I'm doing it because there's no real reason why I'm doing it. I can't put my finger on one reason why I'm doing this. And I'm not going to claim that, oh, I'm going to help so many people out there. And I'm not going to claim that I need it. I'm just doing it as a leap of faith. And I hope that it could be helpful. And if it is helpful for me, if I find a place inside of myself that, like, wow, going out in public, and now that all my friends and all my family know the challenge that I go through, and that's like a next level of healing that I wasn't even thought possible, amazing, great. And, um, and if there is someone who comes back to me, and one person that says, you know, because of your particular circumstance, with everything, then, then even, even, even better. But I don't think it's, it's not necessarily part of the, you know, the formula of healing and part of the formula of getting through life. Now, with that 10-minute introduction, <laughs> I'll tell you like this. So um, I grew up in a very large family, um, number 12 of 14. Uh, my parents are shluchim in Queens. Um, some of their particular things that stick out as like unique challenges. So I'm Chabad and I went to a non-Chabad school. Um, there was definitely a fair share of trauma there, especially I remember like on Gimel Tamas, I remember coming, um, <laughs> I remember coming into my classroom on Gimel Tamas after coming back from, or maybe it was the next day and literally the entire class was like laughing and pointing and saying like, oh, we told you the Rebbe is a Mashiach. We told you the Rebbe is a Mashiach. Like, that's the kind of mentality that I grew up until um, Sifta grow, growing up as a Chabad boy in the 90s, specifically in, um, in a non-Chabad non school. So I was also, you know, a big troublemaker. Um, so there's a lot of feelings of being an outsider as, as growing up. Wonderful parents, loving brothers and sisters. Um, but being number 12 in a family of 14, as you can imagine, uh, that, that whole uh, dynamic shadowing over you, and then on top of that being in a school that's where you are in, an outsider, honestly, I can feel for most of my life I felt like an outsider. And so then even when I came to Masifta, to high school, to Crown Heights, um, where I didn't, you know, I didn't, ha I didn't know a lot of people, just a few cousins, and I had to, you know, acclimate to an entirely new environment. So a lot of my high school years, my Masifta years, were also felt like a, an outsider. And there were friends, there were cliques, there was this and that. But as a general whole, I would say even till today, 34 years old, I still feel like an outsider. I feel, still feel to a certain degree, I don't really belong in any community. Um, and perhaps, and I, I don't, I'm not upset about it. It's perhaps it shaped my, maybe you can say it shaped my unique personality. Um, but I don't know if everybody deals with this, but I definitely don't feel like, you know, um, I'm like really part of um, any, you know, um, community. And living with that is it's not, it's, it's unique, it's challenging. Um, to go a little, uh, to get to what, you know, the unique challenges that, I, that I've dealt with. So I'm 34 at... Um, 31 years old, I had a bit of a, um, a major transition in my life where I, I guess I, I can call it I finally put 
labels and names to what I was dealing with. Um, and it was important for me to do that because it created some clarity into what I was dealing with. And what I've discovered is a few things. So number one, um, clinically ADHD. Um, and, you know, I used to, till I was 31, I used to say, everyone likes to say, you know, ADHD, ADD. Um, otherwise, you know, you're not part of the new renaissance of, uh, of go-getters and doers and grinders and hustlers, right? Um, but I'm, to be actually to be ADHD is a little bit different. <laughs> um, and also uh, discovered that I've been suffering with um, depression my whole life. Um, if I, the way I describe it is that if one, if between one to 10, if one is happy, go jolly, and just like, you know, not being in your head and not living in your head, and 10 is like you can't get out of bed, at any given time through most of my life, through, through any time I can remember, I would probably be in between a three and a four at, like on an average day, certain sadness, a certain cloud over my head, a certain darkness. Um, and then there have been periods, different episodes in my life where it went to a complete 10. Um, usually where the circumstances of my life um, were either it was, I wanna, it was another, you know, one of them was, I don't know, it doesn't have matter details, but just circumstances where there was either a lot of pressure or I was away from people, um, where um, you, you, you wake up in the morning and you could, your breath is at like 20%. Um, you would literally have no reason to wake up. There's like the, the, the it's, it's, such a, it's such a difficult thing to describe, um, but it's a sense of um, um, hopelessness where it's like, why should I even get up? I don't, I've never been suicidal. It's not like I wanted to like, oh, take my life, but it never, I don't think it ever got to that degree. Um, but a real sense of, and it's of hopelessness, of apathy, of darkness, where you, and, and, then it, and then it translates into like physically not being able to actually get out of my bed. Like being stuck, feeling like there's like 150 pounds weighing me down, and I cannot actually get, and I know I can physically get out of my bed, but emotionally. So I've been through a few of those episodes. Um, what happens in, in the in, in the environment when that happens? And was it was it after you were married? Kids? Um, so it's happened a few times. Be that those episodes of like you know high intensity happened. I would say maybe three, three and a half, four times before I was married, and then. Uh, about three times after I was married. Okay, so what I, what I really want to know when I ask that question is sure. like, is there an additional added pressure to that? When I'm not just single, I have responsibilities. I have a job. I have a wife. I have kids. I have I have things I need to do. Like, what happens in the internal war in between? Yeah. I have things to do and like I just can't. So I'll tell you specifically. Uh, three years ago. It got really, really bad, and a typical day would look like, you know, you'd get up in the morning, you have responsibilities. I have responsibilities, right? Um, and the mornings are the worst. So when you're in a position, in a role, in a business, in a company where you can't actually afford to, um, to not get out of bed, you have to get out of bed because people are relying, clients are relying, employees are relying, colleagues are relying on you. Um, a typical morning would be like 
spending from like 7.30 to 9 o'clock listening to like, like motivational videos or listening to like motivational recordings just to get myself to a place where I can face the day, right? Um, so sometimes I would like, I had my rituals where like I'd go into the shower and I literally wanted to just like lay down in the shower and just like go to sleep. <clears throat> and then I would like put on like motivational videos or put on motivational tracks in the shower and I would literally in the shower tell myself, mushy, get out of it, mushy, go, mushy, move, move, move. And I wasn't on any medication or anything. I would just like need to like, literally like infuse like oxygen into my, into my brain just to be able to literally face the normal day. Um, and, and if I would pump myself up to a degree, because I couldn't afford not to, right? I'd pump myself up to a degree where I, the, that disparity and that darkness would finally cease to just a tiny little bit where I felt it was like, okay, now I got to put my clothes on and now I got to get dressed and now I, and now I got to move. As the day goes by, things are manageable. And, um, when you're at work, nobody knows because once you step into work zone, you're, there's a certain second brain that turns on and I love what I do. So, um, and then it's sort of like the second you walk out of that office, it almost like the, it comes back on heavy and nights are okay. Um, you have to live with someone who supports you. And my wife has been extremely understanding through it. In the beginning of our marriage, she just thought I was just being a jerk, you know, or like just being distant or just like, not realizing that this is something that I don't necessarily have full control over. Um, and again, I'm talking about two different stages. I'm talking about an average day being at a three or four, right? So people know me as this like exciting, happy, funny, alive person, and I am. But when I'm not, you know, performing, so to speak, and I'm not in a position where certain adrenaline or something takes over and I'm in my regular state when I come home, when I'm waking up and I go to sleep, I'm a different person. You would be like, who is this guy? Like, he's such a, like, happy guy, such a thing. It's like the switch turns off and, the, and then your wife is the one who has to deal with that person, right? Um, and in the beginning, it was very difficult for her because just get up, just get a, just get a move on, like, get out of bed or, or why are you acting like that or why are you acting so... And... Over the years, you know, obviously there, a language starts to grow of how you'd be able to, to deal with it and everything, but um, eventually she, it's a combination of both me working much hard to, harder to, to navigate it and her realizing that this is, a, to a certain degree, that you can't control this, and she's been amazing. She's just been very, very understanding and realizing that um, these are his very, very unique challenges. Um, and she's... You know, there's a good wife doesn't let you get away with it fully, but also has a balance of understanding and things. So um, if anything, those things in my life have actually um, been supportive to me, knowing that I have a job, knowing that I have a wife that supports me, those things that make it challenging, that I can't sleep in, I can't, I think those have been things that have motivated me to, to progress. I have so many questions, but I think the most important question I think I need to ask you is when was like, how did your wife get educated? Like, how did she know that this is what the situation is and this is how she should respond to you to make it the ideal environment for you to heal in? Yeah. Uh, she kicked me out of the house. <laughs> Are you serious? She said, just get out of here and figure it out. <laughs> it's a real true, true story. So what did you do? Um, so I left. Um, no, so this is what I say three years ago. So this is where a big change happened. So 
she did the best thing that any wife could have ever done um, to someone in my situation where three years ago where it was really bad. Um, and just, you know, bringing the whole environment of the home down, she, you know, a good, a good spouse realizes there has to be boundaries, right? Um, and she realized that the only way that, um, that the marriage would last and that it would thrive and, um, is if I d deal with it in a very serious way and really try to conquer it and not just uh, allow it control me, but to really take full control. And she's like, I mean, in short, and basically the message was, get out of here, um, go figure your, your, your stuff out, and I'll support you and everything. But, you know, until, in, you know, and that was rock bottom for me when I say three years ago. So I went through a bit of a, um, a therapy binge. <laughs> so I went to see a hypno hypnosis specialist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and, and um, I started, I got diagnosed ADHD, got no, diagnosed with depression. I started taking medication. Um, so I take uh, Zoloft. I, took, I started taking Wellbutrin, and now I take Zoloft and Wellbutrin, one for ADHD, one for, um, for depression. And um, once she saw that I was really, and that's what they really want. They just want to see that you're taking control of the situation, and then they can support you. Right. And when you say control, do you mean like responsibility? And it's not that because I know for me, like when it comes to acting or or using drugs or doing th certain things that I feel like I need to do in order to to numb something, to feel something, right, or to get out of a certain state of being, I need to do those things, I'm, and I'm just like simply powerless over it, right? I cannot change as much as like I like when you were describing those that war in your head when you're in the shower and you're trying to force positivity into your mind all by yourself and failing and maybe trying and just getting a, like a little hole so that you can just a little opening that you can finally push yourself to go to work. So when I, I'm just identifying with that powerlessness, right? Not being able to control what's going on in my head and ultimately not to being able to control myself. So I see it more of like, and this is just my understanding. I wanted to hear just your take on it is like, it's not that I'm personally taking control over it. It's that I'm going to seek help outside of myself because I, by myself in the shower alone, I'm not good. I can't, I can't figure it out. But when I step out of my comfort zone and I speak to professionals, which by the way, I'd love to know, like, how did you do that journey? How, how did you find the first therapist? How did you know yeah. it was right and to trust them? But uh, I wanted to hear first, like, what are your thoughts about that? I think you're making a very, very good point as in, like, you know, like, how do you score, right? Like, when a wife looks at you and says, like, okay, how much should I, how much crap should I take from you? Like, right? At what point does she, does she say, like, all right, we're both doing our part here and I'm not getting stepped over and I'm not just going to be, you know, a rug for the rest of our lives. That like, I know you have an issue, but you're taking responsibility. So what does that responsibility look like? So I, I and, and that's where the big shift was for me, right? So for the first eight or nine years of my marriage, you know, I got married at 23. So, so even less, let's say, uh, eight, yeah, eight years of marriage, it was, um, it was this component of it, right? This component of it was 
was really bad. Um, and it, and it affected the marriage in a very, in a very negative way. Um, because I didn't have a plan, right? I didn't tackle it with, hence this, you know what I mean? I didn't tackle it with like, like with my full capacity. Now, what tackling it with your full capacity, the first step is realizing that you cannot do it on your own. So my first step was um, two things, was consistent therapy. So um, I stopped about a year ago, but from when I was 31 um, for uh, several years, I went to therapist. Um, at some times for one year, I went to two therapists a week. And um, Can you explain that? Um, I went to two different types of uh, therapists. Therapy, you know, people, there's a bad therapist, good therapist. It's how you orchestrate it, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to one therapist who was like a firm guy who um, had um, obviously, you know, the Torah perspective and the, you know, the more spiritual perspective. And then I went to a strictly just like psychoanalysis, psychoanal, you know, a real psychoanalytical person. Um, and I thought, and I went to them different at ends of the week. So I went to one on Tuesday and one on Friday. So I opened up my week with, with one person, closed my week with another person, talked through everything that was going on. Um, just being super aware, the awareness of everything that was going on. You do that for a year, you're going to see, some, you're going to start to see major changes. At the same time, I was on medication. So the first real step to work, to, to helping yourself is realizing that you cannot there isn't enough willpower in an, I don't think, at least not with me. I can honestly, I talk for myself. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a, I have anybody who knows me, I'm a shark. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a major go-getter, but, and I always, I always said like, I never, the reason why I never put my, put my finger onto the, this is depression, right? Because I was, I would say like, oh, you're depressed right now because, oh, you don't have enough money. Or you're depressed right now oh, because this circumstance is not going the way. If right. I could just make enough money, I won't be depressed anymore. Oh my God, and if I could so just, common. Yeah, if I could just change my circumstance, I won't be so sad, everything. And then I realized like, one second, my circumstances are actually great, right? And I'm still sad about what? About things that people would pay millions of dollars to be, to be, to be sad about or to be happy about, you know what I mean? And they're making me sad. Power struggles and this and that. So I think the first step is like, the first step to helping yourself is realizing that you can't help yourself. You need outside help. So for me, it was getting a profession, getting professionals to therapy to, to sit with on a consistent basis. So I was like therapy binge for, for almost three years. And medication. Medication has completely changed my life. Um, it gives you, it doesn't, people are, a lot of people are against it or they're, they're scared of it. There's a lot of, um, um, you know, debate in that area, but I'm a huge fan. I'll tell you why. In my experience, medication has been probably the single greatest game changer um, because it's like a, it's the assistance that you need um, that gives you that leverage. It gives you that help to do to help you with things that you're already working on, right? So it's like someone who's, if someone is going to the gym and they're working out and they're not eating any protein, it's gonna have a much less of an effect, but right? You go to the gym, you can work out, but you have to eat well also, right? You gotta have those protein shakes, you gotta eat the, whatever whatever diet you want. You can't be, you know, eating hamburgers and, and all day and then going to the thing and expect the same results. So it's the same thing like this, with medication basically gives you that, um, that, leverage 
to do the work that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So it was going to therapy plus being on the medication simultaneously and just being proactive um, in my life is where the real change began. Today, I'm 34 years old, three years after doing this, this, this work. I don't get depressed anymore. That's um, and, and, but let me clarify that, okay? When I mean when I don't get depressed anymore, meaning I do get depressed, but it is at a distance. I can look at it and I can say, you're getting depressed right now. You, you're sad, okay? You're at a three right now. You're at a seven right now. But it doesn't completely overtake me. I don't feel hopeless. I, I'm able to take, be one step away from it. I'm able to visualize it at a distance. And I say, okay, now what are you going to do about it? That's right? such a huge point. And a lot of therapy is actually based on That's what I, I see. It just, I'll just speak from my experience a little bit. Is that, you know, I'll just get, you know, the, the heaviest therapy I've done and I talk about this a lot, is internal family systems therapy, which thank God I'm, I'm doing a training on it. I love it so much. I'm doing a training on it so that I can help others the same way that I'm being helped. And just like meditation and mindfulness and these types of things, the idea is, is that to create that separation. You know, the depression isn't me. The depression is something that if I am given the tools, I'm able to separate myself from a little bit and I'll be able to actually visualize it as something separate from me. Yeah. Yes, I could be feeling it, I could be feeling the heat, but the source of the heat is just one step away from me and I could look at it and therefore I can actually yeah. attend I think, to it. I think when you accept the fact that um, I've accepted the fact that it's never going to not be a part of me. Um, it is my DNA and I'm... I have to be proactive about mm. keeping it at bay. I would love to hear what, what does proactive mean? Um, so medication is proactive. I don't see a therapist anymore, but I do different things like every quarter. Like I'll go on a meditation retreat. Um, I do meditation almost daily. Um, I try to do meditation almost daily. So I'll... I'll go to sleep with a good 20, 25 minute meditation. I've recently in the last uh, few weeks started, did, got a, a, a cycling bike, a Peloton, and I do uh, between 20 and 45 minutes of, of, of cycling a day. Um, and realizing that when it's coming, when it's coming on, you got to double down on the things that make you happy. Okay, because it's almost like it's always next door and it can open the door and it can invite itself in or you can keep it closed. So being proactive is just filling yourself up with the things that keep you focused and keep you centered. Right. So davening is huge. On Shabbos, I, I, you know, my daily davening is not fantastic, but my Shabbos davening is very intentful. For me, davening on Shabbos is... It's a certain type of therapy for me. Um, I never miss davening. I never, almost never miss shul. My kids know. My kids know they can get away with a lot of things, but they cannot get away with not coming to shul on Shabbos and davening. So that thing centered you, right? You got to find things that, that center you. Um, meditation every day centers me. My work centers me. My relationship with my wife and having conversations mm. center me. Exercise uh, centers me. Medication centers me. Um, 
And I've also learned to, to accept, because you accept it, that's part of you. Then you're going to say, okay, now what are you going to do with, do about it? Right. Because right, somebody's listening to, to this podcast, right? And they hear the literally seven, eight rituals that you do. And they're <laughs> I don't like, do them all at the same time. I, I know. But what my point is, is that like, if some, when somebody's in, in it, it's so difficult to even imagine doing all that type of stuff. So I just wanted to go back to what we said a little bit earlier. So the first thing was hitting that bottom, right? Being able to admit that, you know, there's, I, I'm trying and trying and trying and I'm not succeeding and I need to be willing to ask for help, right? So the first thing is you go and you have conversations with with the therapist. And was it the first therapist that you met that you were like, okay, this is the person I'm I'm sticking with for a while? Um, I'm just wondering what that beginning of that journey, because there's, there's, there were steps until you got to this right. point. Listen, for me, it was hitting rock bottom. For me, it was when, when I really started to deal with it, right? Um, it was hitting rock bottom. It was when basically my wife was like, I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not going to continue living like this. And then I realized it's like the most important thing to me in my life could be gone if I don't take, if I don't take this seriously. That was an awakening. Okay? So for me, it was an awakening. Mm. And for me, that awakening um, led to doing things that I never thought I would do getting a therapist on a day, on a weekly basis, twice a week, taking medication, um, right? Um, and then starting to get into, medita- into meditation, um, taking um, my life more serious. I do, I, I, I do these meditation retreats. I go away for two or three days and I tap back in. So for me, it was hitting rock bottom that, that forced me to do that. You know, I hope it doesn't, for the average person, I hope it doesn't take hitting rock bottom to do it. But so I can't speak, you know, honestly, it's really hard because I was sort of dancing around with it for so many years. I never really took full action and made it like, this is my priority in life. My number one priority in life is dealing with my mental health. Like it goes to the, to the point, Mush, that I didn't want to do this talk because I felt the reason why I, I avoided it and I'm on that first school of thought because I thought if this talk is going to make me lose track of, of, of my game plan, right? Also, I'm going to get distracted. Now people are going to call me and say, oh, or now everyone knows so now I have to live in a different world. To me, I'm almost like that's how focused I am in terms of dealing with this. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that you need to deal with. If, you're, if, you, if you deal with – forget about what you. I deal with – depression. It's real. Anxiety, ADHD, depression. These things are real for me. It's the number one focus of my life. If I can't, if, the, if I don't make that my number one focus in my life, I can't do anything else. Yeah. I have this conversation a lot with people and that's such a strong point. Like people are just getting into recovery, right? They go to rehab, they come out and they're like, okay, now I'm getting my life back. I'm getting my family back. I'm getting my job back. I'm trying to, and what, what people need to hear is exactly what you said. Everything that is going to come ahead is going to be built on a certain foundation. My foundation has to be a strong foundation. And for me, and I believe for you, my foundation has to be my mental health, my mental and emotional well-being. If I have that as a strong foundation, 
I could build, I may be able to build a skyscraper on this. I don't know. But if there's a crack in my foundation, even if I build one floor on top of this, it's going to crumble. I want to tell you something. You notice I'm sweating? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know why I'm sweating? No. Because of my medication. I sit at, I sit at business meetings. People don't, people don't even know this. And they're like, Mushu, what are you schwitzing for? Like, you know, you got the deal. You're closing it. Don't worry about it. I schwitz. I sweat because of my medication. And you know what? I don't care. And look, when I'm in that meeting and I'm thinking, and I'm, or whatever, and I'm sitting with you right now and I'm thinking, like, wow, Mushu, like, what are you, like, what are you sweating for? Like, you know, like, you, you, you need to do some exercise. No, I do exercise. And for me, it's like, I'm almost, there's a certain pride in it. It's like, if, if, if me sweating means I'm taking care of myself and it's, I have to, you know, you know, um, sacrifice some kind of normalcy or sometimes thing, it's fine. It's at the center, when it becomes the center of your existence, then you can have a full existence. My problem was that I kept trying to, till, till three years ago, I kept trying to avoid it, right? Don't give it a name because if you give it a name, then you give it substance and you give mm -hmm. it and you give it and then it grows, right? You don't have ADHD. You're just a wild guy. You know, you can't concentrate or you don't have depression. You just, uh, your circumstances can, can be better and you're sad. No, I have ADHD. I have depression and, and, and making it the central focus of, of my life and dealing with it so that it doesn't have to consume me all the time is the way I've gotten better, is the way I manage uh, myself. So it's a certain subtlety. It's a certain way of, it's a certain focus, you know? So I'm thinking about it all the time, but I'm also living a happier life. Mm -hmm. There's a certain question that's like coming out of my guts. I figured I'm just going to ask you. Did any part of your story, how did, like, did you ever, like, question God in this whole thing? Like, God, I'm trying to do this. Can you please, like, just take this away from me? I want to be a good husband. Why are you doing this to me? No. None of it. No. Um, and I totally understand people who do. Like, I have a certain, I, I have a certain very, very naive um, faith in God. It's a very... Um, childish faith in God. It's not a very sophisticated faith in God. So I've never, never had an issue with, with, with God. And I can imagine people who, who would as in like, it's just like, it's too much to bear. Like, it doesn't make sense for me. I never really, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, you know, that lack of sophistication in my Amuna, perhaps it's the reason why I don't sit and learn an hour or two or three a day, right. you know? So it has its, it has upsides, downsides. And when you have, when you have a more sophisticated relationship with God, it, it, it bet you benefit in, in other ways, but my lack of, but when you have a more, um, simple, uh, faith, you know, you don't question. Right. If there's anything that you can talk to in regards, I mean, there's so many different levels, but let's say, from an education perspective, like if you only would have known or from a community level or anything that you can think of that would be important that it either impacted your life positively in addition to what you said about your wife and things like that or something that could have been, obviously we're not just here to say, oh, could have, should have, would have, but like something that could inspire somebody who's listening and say, hey, you know what, based on what he's saying, maybe I should do 
something for if I'm a teacher. Maybe I should do something for my class if I notice something. Maybe there's something I should do in my shul. Maybe there's something I should do as a parent, as a spouse. I think... Um, I think the one thing that could that can really, really change is the kind of active thing that I try to do in my life is I have I've learned that in the last few years when I started dealing with this, my barrier of conversation, the fakeness of my conversation has pretty much bottomed out. Okay. Um, what I mean is that, you know, when I'm sitting in Shul and Shabbos, right? And I'm sitting with my friends around the table. So several years ago, we would just basically talk a lot about nothing, right? And what's he doing? What's this doing? What's what happened with politics, with this and that, right? You think about nothing. Today, I find myself having like really like vulnerable conversations. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I feel like, a, like a, with, even with colleagues and with friends and with show members and like, I feel like there's a certain, there's a certain openness. There's a certain consciousness that at least people in my circles, um, are, are starting to tap into, right? Mushy, you and I, we know each other for a very long time. We met three or four years ago at this event, right? And then we went into the car, you drove me, you gave me a ride home. And all of a sudden I had one of the most, oh, we both had one of the most open conversations. We just, and it felt weird and it felt great, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it took, <laughs> no, it took our conversation and what we say like connection and our attachment to each other it took our relationship literally tenfold, like yeah. literally. It came from, hey, Mush, hi, hi, why are you just catching up to every time I see you, I give you a huge hug. Yeah. And, we, and you know that I know that you know that we're both going through something. We're both struggling with something. And it's an amazing feeling. So I'm, I'm, I have no message to the, to, the, to the establishment. I have nothing to say to them. I, I'm not involved, so I can't talk to them. I can't think. What I could say is that Every person who you encounter with, whether it be a friend or colleague, everybody just wants to have a real conversation. Now, someone's got to break the ice. Someone's got to do it, right? Because it's safe to just have a surface conversation. It's safe to just talk about the weather, talk about politics, say a joke, be apathetic. But I dare you to say, how are you doing, man? Like, are you happy? Like I, I, I noticed that like, doesn't look like, like, how are you feeling or saying, or, or say to that person, and obviously talking about people you trust, you know, you're not going to go spill your beans to everybody. But it's like, oh man, I had a really, really hard day. Like I'm, I'm really, really struggling with this. And then you're going to, so what I, my message, and I'm, for all of you listening, I'm quotations in the air right now is that if everybody is dealing with something, right? What's that saying? Everybody's dealing with something and I think we all have a certain responsibility because of the advantage of this is to be open. And we, there's, a, there's, a, there's like a renaissance happening in that. There's like a, a wave to be ridden. Like this, this, just the fact that this podcast is happening like an organic way, like through Nishamas, through the people, by the people. And the, hopefully people are going to listen to this and they're going to, you know, the first instinct may be something, you know, the Yetzirah is going to something. And then their second instinct is like, darn, like I, I wish I had that. Like, I, I wish I was able to just like look at somebody, a friend and say like, I don't want to talk about the surface stuff. Like, I want to talk about what's really going on. 
So that's what I would do. I would encourage anybody, if you know me, <laughs> do not be afraid to, when you come up to me, get straight to it. Like just get straight to the real stuff. And I think if we could peel off the layer of the fake stuff and just in every interaction with measure, with, you know, common sense to be having real conversation, you don't have to hide. You don't have to like, you can just be who you are and be open with people. And it takes you to do it. Like you do it. So that's, that's my only like thought that I can, you know, think of from, from that. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, um, I've, I've been so grateful and so blessed to be able to have those so many of those types of conversation, you know, because I put myself out there, right? I, in front of the community, I opened myself up. So a lot of people felt safe, you know, to just yeah, have that type of conversation. So there's such a blessing and there's such a the human connection, the soul to soul that happens, which I'm just going to throw it in. I mean, in, in, in Tanya, if anybody's learning Tanya in Periclon and Vase, it talks about making the goof, uh, our bodies and our outsides, something that's just something added. And the most important thing is our soul. Like this is a demonstration of that. Stopping, uh, setting aside all of my fears and ideas of what people think of me and all this facade that I have to put up to, to maintain this image of something close to perfection, just setting it aside for a second and making my insides, my emotional and my spiritual well-being more important. When I do that in conversation, I get to connect with another person's soul. And then there could be Shavas you know, that uh, um, the, the real oneness, the real achtas between one person and another. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll add to that where if I look back at the times where my depression hit a 10, um, it was usually due to circumstances where I was disconnected from people. Mm. Um, I remember when I was uh, 21 years old and I was on shlicha somewhere. After smicha, I did like a, a shlicha stint. And I was like leading like system for programs and I was living by myself in a, like this deserted building. Okay, that's where the shleich, God bless them, I love them, and they're the best in the whole world. But that's, I even insisted. They wanted to put me up in, a, in like an apartment that was a little bit further away. I said, nah, I'll sleep in this, in, in this building. It was like an old nursing home, whatever. And I was away from people, and, and I was away, didn't have like that day-to-day -day connection. And that's where, one of the reasons why the depression started to really, really heat up. And, I, and other times in my life, I realized like when you're disconnected from people, it, 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 it grows, it, it, it mushrooms, and it really, thing. and you need connection. You need connection. So what I can say, like, for me, when you're in a place of disparity and you're in a place of, um, you know, you're, you're, you're grappling and you're depressed and you can, you have to do things that are outside of you. You're not going to find that courage within. You're going to find enough courage just to say, okay, I don't have enough courage. I don't have enough motivation. You need to find the things that are outside of you. You need to open up to friends so that they can support you. Right, which brings me to the next point, just, uh, just speaking to all of those who may have something. Like if you have a loved one or you're a parent, and, and this is a big thing that they talk about in parenting, at least in the things that I've heard, like Shimon Russell and... 
we need to create a safe environment. If we're a teacher, we need all our, every single one of our students to know that I'm a safe person to talk to. Yeah. And I won't judge. So, and that comes down to, I'll just give you an example that just popped into my head the other day. If we're having a Shabbos meal and we're gossiping about somebody who, who is suffering from some sort of mental illness or some sort of, when we gossip about something like that, that automatically gives a message to somebody who might be sitting at the table saying, oh, that's something to be embarrassed about. That's not something to talk about. And I'm just that's just one example. I think we're, we're coming towards the end. And um, I just wanted to let people know that um, if you want, you can look my shop. But he's, he has a very, very respectable position in uh, charity, charity.com, where he has helped probably thousands by now organizations uh, raise uh, funds through their program um, him with his with his uh, with his wife Mimi who runs uh, Mimu Maxi uh, who also has been constantly spreading positive messages um, you guys are tre- a tremendous people and I cannot thank you enough really thank you so much much it's a pleasure to be here and um, thank you for being the vessel of of this conversations because I think it's going to do wonderful things for our community and the ripple effect that it's going to have uh, beyond. So you're at Sadik and um, doing good stuff. You should be very proud. Thank you so much, Mush. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.